Welcome to Bethesda Broadcast, the podcast of Bethesda Church in Huron, South Dakota. Our speaker today will be Dan Copeland, who also spoke a few weeks ago. Dan is the Bible teacher at James Valley Christian School here in town and a member of Bethesda Church. Today, he will be looking at prayer and revival in the church. His text is Ezra chapters 9 and 10. I encourage you to open up your Bibles and follow along with Dan as he gives today's message. Well, uh, you know, I, I am actually not preaching this morning on what I had originally talked to Pastor Roy about. He and I had been discussing an issue that uh, I think is very important, and uh, I told him I was going to preach on that topic, and I'm not actually going to. And the reason is, as I prayed about it, I just kind of felt a conviction that, that there was a message that needed to come before that. And I'm not going to tell you what it was, because uh, I believe Roy is going to be preaching on this uh, sometime in the next few weeks. Um, but I, I came to this conviction that before I began preaching on that topic, uh, about which I wanted to, that the issue of prayer needed to be addressed first. Because if you're going to address something that is potentially... Um, I don't want to say divisive, but, but it is very convicting, uh, something that is a, a hot and hard topic to deal with. It has to be addressed with prayer. And I really believe that the church needs to grow in prayer. You know, if we look around our nation today, it really appears that the church of Jesus Christ is much more fractured than it ever has been in history. I mean, uh, we look around the culture, and we see terrible morals in our culture, and then we look around the church and we see the same thing. So many churches are abandoning the foundation of the Word of God. So many churches are rejecting God's authority and rejecting core doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's so easy for us then, as, as conservative, and I don't know if I really like that word, but for lack of a better term, I'll say conservative Christian churches those who stand on the foundation of the Word of God, it's so easy for us to get discouraged and to despair and wonder, God, what is going on? I mean, your scripture says that the church is the bride of Christ. Why then would you allow your bride to do the things that we see around us? Just this week, you may have noticed the big announcement from the PCUSA officially changing their doctrinal statement to say that homosexual marriage is godly. It's a good thing. It's one of God's designs for mankind. How do we reconcile that with the concept that the church is the bride of Christ? Well, we could talk about all the perversion and all the wrong things, but the simple fact of the matter is, I think most of us would agree that we need a revival. And it's not a revival in our country, okay? You need to understand, America is not the chosen people of God. The church is the chosen people of God. We need a revival in the church. So I want to talk this morning about some important principles for biblical revival. Before we do that, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, able to divide down to the very distinction of soul and spirit. Things, Lord, that we can't even understand. 
And I pray, Lord, this morning that through your word you would speak to us and help us to understand, Lord, the great need that we have. God, help us, I pray, to know what to do in this generation as we see things falling apart. Teach us, Lord, I pray, from your word. We praise you, God. We thank you for the mercies that you pour out on us constantly, moment by moment. And Lord, I pray for your help for for myself this morning. Would you please uh, guard my tongue? And may the words that I speak this day, Lord, truly bring honor to you and speak the truth of your word. I pray for us, Lord, this morning as the church of Christ, that we would understand you better and love you more. And I pray that in the precious name of our Savior and our King, Christ Jesus. Amen. So let's, let's define something really quick. When I say we need revival, but what does that mean? People have gobs of different answers. I was in a, 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 a pastor's conference meeting uh, maybe three or four years ago you know, when I was an associate pastor in another denomination. And uh, they asked the question, what is revival? You know, it blew me away. It took 20 minutes before a single person opened their Bible and said, well, what's the Bible say about that? Which itself just tells me, hey, we need a revival, don't we? If people want to banter around and beat this around, and, and for 20 minutes people said, well, it's this over here. Oh, no, well, it's this over here. Well, it's this ecstatic outpouring of feeling. Well, it's the Spirit coming down on the church. And the answers were, there was, there was no shortage. You know, they, they didn't go to the Bible because they didn't have an answer. They just finally went to the Bible because they figured, well, We've beat all the other answers to death. What does revival mean? We need to understand revival is a restoring to life of something that was once alive and is now dead, or at least is now unconscious. Okay? Revival is not a new birth. And this is where things get confusing, because in, in America we've often used the term revival to refer to like an evangelism explosion. Okay? Uh, when, when a whole lot of people start getting saved, we say that's revival. Well, that's actually not revival because revival happens to something that is alive. Okay? Uh, when a child is born, we don't call that revival. We call it birth. When a person is kind of old and, and they suddenly slump over in church and they're not breathing and we do CPR and they start breathing again, we can call that revival. Now, I've been in churches where that's the only revival they ever had. That was terrible, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we need revival in the church because we are the, thing, the, the ones who are spiritually alive. Now, does the world need evangelism? Yes. Does the world need uh, this, this great outpouring of the Spirit to bring conviction and new salvations? Yes. But that is evangelism. That's not revival. Here's the thing. Evangelism brings new life, and the church needs revival but the world needs evangelism. Okay? The church needs revival. The world needs evangelism. And the world is going to get their need met when the church gets its need met. Because evangelism is the natural outpouring of revival. Okay? When you light up your barbecue and you get it going nice and hot and you like it that hot, if you really want to turn your hamburgers into a solid brick black chunk, you add more charcoal, right? 
You don't sit there and throw water on the fire. You add more charcoal. That's what's natural. When the Spirit of God is moving and there's revival in the church, people will want to add more charcoal to the fire. That is more souls being saved. They'll want to preach the gospel. But we need revival here. When I look at the Scripture to learn about revival, we don't go to Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Why? Because that was not a revival. That was a birth. We go to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the church of Jesus Christ was so alive during that time period that I don't see a whole lot of examples. Some hints here and there, but not a lot of great examples of revival in the New Testament church. But in the Old Testament, we see a number of significant times when revival took place among the people of God. And perhaps the most significant was in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which together make one long story. Okay? This morning we're going to read from Ezra. If you could put those verses up there. I know it's a little broken up, but I didn't want to uh, read the entire portion because it might take a little while. So we're going to read some portions from, from Ezra. Let me give you the background. Uh, it's after the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> Excuse me. After the Babylonian captivity. The people of Israel, they need revival because they had come back to Jerusalem They'd been trying to rebuild the city. They had rebuilt the temple. But they were not following God's law. They were quickly falling back into the same old pattern they had before of being kind of faithful over here and really unfaithful over here. And so Ezra has come to Jerusalem because God has laid it on his heart to teach the people how to follow the law. And as soon as he shows up, and he, he brings all the gifts that he had brought for the temple and all these things, then he begins getting down to business. And the first thing he addresses is this issue in Ezra chapter 9 of the intermarrying of people. By the way, we say, well, is that really applicable to us today? Are we supposed to not marry other people groups? No, but sexual immorality is applicable to us today, isn't it? Sexual immorality is something that is rampant, even among conservative Christians. So let's read this text this morning. Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, and then 15, and then chapters 10, 1 through 4, and verse 9, and 14 through 17. Sorry for breaking it up, but it, it keeps it more interesting, right? All right. Ezra chapter 9. He says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me, that is Ezra, and they said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites and all the other ites. It's a lot easier to say it that way. Verse 2, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. Now, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and I pulled my hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garments and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed. And I blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. 
And then he gives this beautiful prayer, and it's worth reading the whole thing. But I encourage you to take this home and do that. Read his prayer. It's powerful. But he ends his prayer in verse 15. And he says, O Jehovah, God of Israel, you are just. For you have left us a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. Now while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra and said, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandments of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So what does Ezra do? He gathers all the men, all the people, gathers them together. In verse 9, it says, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And then they decide how they're going to fix the problem. So I'll jump down to verse 14. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at the appointed times, and with them the elders and the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of God over this matter is turned away from us. Now only Jonathan, the son of Azahel, and Josiah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shebiath, the priest, supported them. But the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of their father's households, according to their father's houses, each of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now, the story continues in, in the book of Nehemiah. And basically what's happened here is they've said, okay, we've got to fix the problem, so we're going to appoint men good, noble men, judges, and leaders of the people to decide for us, how are we going to fix this? We need to get rid of these foreign women. Can you imagine that? I need to get rid of my wife and my children because God has commanded me to not be yoked with these people. And so they set up a council, essentially, to decide how to do that, how to do it righteously, how to do it without simply tossing a woman out of her home and leaving her to die. And it took a time period for them to figure that out. Now, as they continue in the story with Nehemiah, there's other issues that come up. And Ezra is given the opportunity over and over again to teach the people. They have these huge gatherings. And this revival happens over the course of several years, actually. This revival happens. You know what's really cool about the story? It changed Jewish culture. It's been 2,500 years since the days of Nehemiah, and there are things practiced in Jewish communities today. It's their origin back to Nehemiah and Ezra. 
things in their culture today that trace their origins back. 2,500 years. Would you like to have a revival in the church in America that influences our culture 2,500 years from now? Yeah. Yeah, alive. Can you think of that? 2,500 years of influence because of the actions of men who chose to be used by God. There's three observations I want to make this morning about revival. But before I make those, ob- those observations, I, I want to point something out to you that I think is very important. Ezra used a word here. And if you go back, uh, go home or, or go after the service and read the text of his prayer in Ezra 9, he used a key word in Ezra chapter 9 over and over again. And the key word is we. We. You see, Ezra had not married any foreign women. Ezra was there to help fix the problem. But when Ezra went before God's throne, I believe he had every right to go, God help them, they have sinned. But he didn't. He said, God help us, we have sinned. It's very easy We have a tendency to separate ourselves from others and say things like, well, they must not be the real church. And you know, there has to be some logical or practical understanding that some churches don't follow the Scripture and some do. I understand why we have some of the distinctions and divisions, but I'm not entirely sure that that's biblical. I don't see anywhere in the Scripture where any of the writers cut off a section of the people and say, well, they're not the church. Paul does say, you have severed yourself from Christ if you would receive circumcision, for you are no longer counting on Christ's sacrifice. He said that in Galatians. But he was not talking about a church. He was talking about individuals. And I find it's very easy. I I say it's so easy because I'm the one who does it most, I think. It's so easy to go, well, you know, that church over there, they did that. They're no longer part of the true church. But I don't see Ezra doing that. He doesn't go, well, you know, all those people together who did that, they're not part of the true church. They're not part of Israel. Instead, he says, we. We have sinned. And I think there's an important point to that. Because as we pray about revivals, we pray for the church, if we're concerned about it, we don't need to be going, Lord, you know, bring judgment on them, or they're doing this. We need to be praying, Lord, we are doing this. Because the the church of Jesus Christ is one church. And we don't have the privilege on earth of fully understanding that concept. But you know, if a guy's hand does something wrong, his foot's just as guilty. Okay? The guy's going to jail, they don't say, well, we'll send your hand to jail, but not your, the rest of you, okay? We are each, each individual church. The local congregation is a part of this greater thing called the body of Christ. And our guilt is shared. Even if not every congregation is involved in the sin, I think there's a sharing of guilt. So let me make, I said three earlier, I meant to say four. By the time I get done, it'll be five points. Um, keep going, we'll get to six. No, I'm kidding. I got four points I want to make about revival that I think are important. The first one is this. Revival starts with prayer. 
Revival starts with prayer. And why is that? I mean, there's a few things I want to tell you about prayer. You know, revival, one of the big things it starts with as well is repentance, okay? But the reason I didn't say revival starts with repentance, I said it starts with prayer, because prayer brings repentance. I really believe this. I believe it from Scripture. I believe it from observation in life, that prayer brings repentance. You see, prayer, real, heartfelt prayer, focuses our eyes on the God of heaven. And when we see the God of heaven for who he is, we begin to see ourselves for who we are. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord, high and lifted up, seated on his throne. The train of his robe filled the temple with glory. We all love that passage, right? But what was Isaiah's response? He sees the Lord and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, I don't think that anybody would have accused Isaiah before this of being a man of unclean lips. He probably was not a foul-mouthed man, I'm guessing. But when he saw God in his glory, he knew. He saw himself for who he was, and he said, Woe is me, because now when I compare myself to the God of heaven, there's a whole lot more dirt on me than I ever thought there was before. You see, Ezra 9.15 again. He says, O Lord God of Israel, you are just, for you have left us a remnant that has escaped as it is today. We are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. In that verse, he's acknowledging that God is just, he says, and yet he is merciful, for you have given us a remnant that has escaped, but he is holy. He says, none can stand before you because of this. As Ezra's eyes are turned to God, he sees how unworthy even he himself is to stand before the God of heaven. Prayer prayer brings about repentance. Prayer also brings about humility. Those two things go hand in hand, I realize. But it's important to understand that. Remember in Luke chapter 18, you have the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus said the Pharisee went into the temple or into the, the, uh, the synagogue and he prayed and he prayed, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men for I tithe on everything I have. I pray, I fast three times a week and he went on and on giving his credentials like he's trying to get a, a job from God or something. And then he says, but then there was the tax collector who would not even lift his eyes upward, but he beat his breast. And he said, Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, that tax collector went away justified. Because true prayer brings humility and repentance. Last thing I want to say about prayer well, not the last thing. Another important thing I want to say about prayer is that it brings unity. It brings unity. You know, we look at the fracturing in the church of Christ in a big sense, but you know, we forget there are fractures in every church, in every local church. I'm just, I'm just a frank kind of guy. I know there's people in this room this morning fighting with somebody else in this room this morning. I don't know who. I'm not trying to point a finger. I'm saying, let's be honest. 
We have problems within our own body, don't we? We have fights. We have disagreements and misunderstandings. People rub people the wrong way. We're sinners. But the reality is that if people will unite together in prayer, I honestly believe that a greater unity will come. You know why? Because when you're all looking at the same God, you're all going to realize something. We're pretty equal down here in our mess. All men are equal before God. Isn't that a fact? I can be so concerned about what this guy's done over here to wrong me and my anger at him, but when I look at God and I begin seeing the dirt on my own face, it makes it a whole lot easier to forgive that guy, doesn't it? And as we come together in prayer, together in prayer, not just, you know, you over here and you over there, but together, I believe that unity will be built through that mutual gazing upon the glory of God and seeking His face. My second big point is that revival takes commitment to a process. You know, the story here, it, if you just kind of read it through quickly and then go on to Nehemiah, it looks like this all happened pretty quickly, right? But, you know, it might take you an hour or so to read those two books together. It's kind of like a movie, you know? It really messes with your, your time scale when you watch an entire person's life in an hour and a half. When we look at this story, it takes an hour, hour and a half to read it, and you don't realize something. The revival that took place took, I'm estimating, maybe about 20 years, maybe a little bit more. 20 years, though. Let's just call it a nice round figure. 20 years. You see... It's easy again to, to go, well, uh, you know, we had this event happen and, and there was a whole bunch of people crying and praying and, and all this great stuff and we're looking forward to that. I mean, wouldn't that just be awesome, right? But that in and of itself may be the day the dam breaks. That may be the beginning, but that's not the revival. The revival is a process and it takes commitment. These people had to meet together. They had to learn that's one of the keys. You have to learn. You have to say, you know what, I'm going to see this out to the end. It gets hard, guys. It gets hard. That's why it takes commitment. The other thing with that is, you know, there's going to be naysayers. If, if a revival is to begin, there are going to be people who say, Ah, uh, you know, come on, guys. Uh, we really need to do that. I mean, seriously, I know the, the pastor wants to have, you know, classes and stuff on Sunday nights, but is that really necessary? Do I really need that? That's why I really love Ezra chapter 10, verse 15. Because it points out the only four leaders of the people who had to be the naysayers. The people are all gathered and they're all like, let's do this thing, guys. Let's fix the problem. And then in verse 15 of chapter 10, but Jonathan the son of Azahel and Josiah the son of Tikvah opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them, meaning support those two guys. So you got four guys here. The two naysayers and their, and their minions. I had a pastor several years ago he made a quote, and it burned into my head. I don't know why. 
But I remember this quote years later. He said, you know, guys, if Jesus walked in here this morning, 99% of you would vote to make him the pastor right now. But there'd be a couple of you who would say, you know, let's wait and see if something better comes along. And you know, that it, it's so true, isn't it? That's why the church has to be committed to growth, committed to change, not empty change, committed to being changed by God as we learn, as we read our scripture and understand better what God expects of us. There's going to be more reasons to quit sometimes than there are to continue. But it takes commitment. The third point is that revival requires sacrifice. Now, I put this towards the end. I didn't want to say it first because I don't want to scare you off from listening to the rest of the sermon. Revival takes sacrifice. You know... Ultimately speaking, in many ways, revival is about putting down our priorities and turning our focus on God and saying, God, what's your plan for my life? The people of Israel were pretty happy with marrying their foreign wives, but they came to the point where they said, you know what, that is not what God wants. I bet a few of them had a great marriage. I bet a few of them were happy to see the woman go. But I'm guessing that most of them probably had a pretty happy marriage. There was nothing wrong in their eyes with the path they were taking. It's a pretty good path. But God said, no, there's a different path, and I commanded you to take that. And so they had to sacrifice. And if God wants, if we want God to revive the church, we have got to acknowledge and be willing and ready to accept that we will have to give up something. It could be sin. It might be something that's not a sin, but is a distraction. I'm not talking about fasting for three weeks. I'm talking about cutting something out of your life entirely in order to be able to follow what God would have you to do. Revival is going to be costly. And I think that's why it's not happening in America. I think we are very happy and satisfied with the wealth and the lifestyle that we enjoy. These men in Ezra's day did not just kick the woman and her children out on the street with nothing. It does not say how they did it. But they did say we're going to do this according to the law with godly men guiding us in the process. I believe they probably provided for those women somehow. I imagine many a man was probably impoverished after that because they did put off these foreign wives but they undoubtedly cared for their needs somehow it cost a great deal when it comes to revival there's a there's an old old saying you've all heard it's very true you can't have your cake and eat it too you can't have your cake and eat it too in other words, I can't go in and say, oh, God, I thank you, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm repenting of my sins, I'm turning, I want a revival, Lord, I want you in my life, I want you as the focus and the center of my life, but I also want to hang on to this stuff over here. Is that okay? Because it's not important to me. As long as I make it less important, I can be focused on you and still have revival. Right, God? 
Is, is, can, can we hash this out? Can we maybe, uh, we'll have like a, a, a plan here, right? We'll have a lawyer draw it up for us. And uh, on, on these weekends, I can have this. And on these weekends, I'll have you. A custody arrangement. That's what I was trying to say. God, I want to have a custody arrangement with these things over here in the world. You can't have your cake and eat it too. There are things, if you want revival, that you are going to have to cut out of your life. Some of us have some secret sins. Of course, I say us. I really mean me. We have secret sins that we hide in our back pocket. And God wants that sin. He wants it. He wants to wash it in the blood of Christ. And he wants to cut it out of your life. He wants you to pull it out and and hand it to him. If you really want revival, that's what you've got to do. I tell you, though, I believe he will eventually take his sanctified scalpel and cut it out of your life if he has to. But the goal is for us to willingly give up our sin, to strive for godliness, and listen to what he wants for us. Now here's my big point. I just said that revival requires sacrifice. And my first point was that revival starts with prayer. Here's the catch. Prayer, real prayer, requires sacrifice. Real prayer requires sacrifice. We are so busy today. We are so busy. I mean, most Christians... And I realize I'm generalizing. I have not done a research study on this. But I've talked to a lot of people. And I've walked the Christian walk myself. My story's not the same as everyone's, I realize. But I've been through the struggles. I really think for most of us, our prayer life consists of 30 seconds here, two minutes there, maybe five minutes here and there. Maybe the last 15 minutes of a Bible study, we pray together. I really believe, and I hope I'm wrong, but I believe that we don't have much of a concept of actual heart-wrenching, knee-bruising, God-oriented prayer. Time that we designate and say, come what may, God, this is your time, and I'm going to focus on you. Because we have so many things that would take up that time. So I want to challenge you this morning to make a sacrifice. To carve out time in your life. And I encourage you to do it together. I haven't talked much about this, but I think there's a power in the church praying together. Yes, there's a power in solo prayer. I, I get that. I believe, I believe there's power in people gathering together and praying. And that's the example I see here in Ezra. And at other times, when the people gathered, you look in Acts when the Holy Spirit came. I know, I just said that wasn't revival. I realize that. But what were they doing in the upper room together? They were praying together. In Acts chapter 1. 
And after the church was born, what did they dedicate themselves to? Look at the end of Acts chapter 2. They dedicated themselves to prayer and the disciples' teachings and the, the breaking of bread. But prayer was one of the things. They understood the necessity of praying together. And I hear it all the time. I'm too busy. Well, you know, if I did that, I would have to give up something else. If I got up early in the morning, I, I, you know, I just have a hard time getting to bed earlier. I realize that. But here's the hard fact. If you will wait until the time is good for you to pray, you will never pray. It's called the law of diminishing intent. The law of diminishing intent. I forget what great sociologist or philosopher came up with that. But he verbalized it as this. When you truly intend to do something, the longer you put it off, the intent will fade until it's gone. If you really intend to do something, you have got to do it now. If you wait until the time is right, it rarely happens. That's my challenge for you today. Now let me transition for a minute. 23 weeks ago today, our pastor, Roy, preached a sermon entitled, A Movement of God. That sermon is available today on the church website under the podcasts, A Movement of God. And in his sermon, he showed about uh, those great revivals of history. He showed how they were the result and the product of people praying, often for a long time in advance. It was a powerful sermon, I thought. I encourage you, if you don't remember it, go to the church website, download it, listen to it. It's called A Movement of God. That Sunday, something changed. And a group of people said, you know what, we've got to... We've got to do something. And ever since that time, for 23 weeks, Monday through Friday, there's been a group meeting at 5.30 in the morning. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm not telling you that to, to brag on those men or to say that you need to do that at 5.30 in the morning. Nothing like that. But I also realize that some people think that's crazy. I realize some people think that's kind of extreme to commit yourself to doing something like that. And yes, I'll be honest with you, Getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning is hard, <laughs> okay? But it's worth doing. I'm going to invite somebody up this morning. Bob. Bob Glanzer. Now, Bob knew that I was going to ask him to come up here, but he did not know what I was going to ask him. So we're going to have a little interview with Bob this morning. It's green. Is it on? Because if I blow, it blows on here. Okay, we're on. All right. Bob, Bob is one of the guys who's been uh, meeting with us. It's, I say us, you know, he's, he is us. Bob and, uh, and a few others, there's five or six guys who are there on a regular basis and a number who come, you know, once a week uh, as they can. Go ahead and pop a squat. I just, it's always weird talking to people standing up, isn't it? Um, I just got a couple questions, Bob. I wanted you to share some of your experience and, uh, and what being involved in 
this early morning prayer time is meant for you. So let me ask you the first question. When were you saved? When was I saved? When were you saved? Well, I remember going forward in Bethel Church back when I was about 12 or 13 years old, uh, but there was about nine of us young guys that went forward at the same time and kind of didn't want to be left out, I guess. <laughs> and I probably count that as a time in my life when I committed my life to Christ. And, but I guess more so when I was probably about a junior in college. Uh, it went through some maybe a bad year as a sophomore in college, and that summer had some conviction about what was happening and where my life was going. And, and it was just ironic, or I guess God's working in the lives of maybe four or five of us in the college dorm at Tabor, we kind of all had that same experience. And um, through that first semester of my junior year, we got together uh, about 5.30 in the morning, several times a week in one of the uh, uh, professor's houses. Uh, he let us come to his living room, and we prayed, and we shared, and had a Bible study together. And I, I guess maybe that's the time I point to in my life where I said um, this is a time when I, without qualification without uh, any uh, reservation want to honor and glorify my God with glorify God with my life and serve him and um, that's maybe kind of the time when I really affirmed that previous commitment in my life awesome now I don't want to put you on the spot here uh, or embarrass you or nothing but give me like a rough decade time frame we're talking oh that would have to be well, I graduated from high school in 63, so... Okay, later than I, would, I thought. I would be about 67, <laughs> somewhere, 65. 65, okay, okay. I'm going to be 70 in September, if that's what you're wondering. <laughs> that works. I don't know what he's going to ask me here, okay? <laughs> uh, let's see, so uh, you've been walking with the Lord for a few decades then, anyway. Trying so, to. Yeah. I, not that I haven't failed. How long have you been coming to uh, the morning prayer group? Well, it had been going maybe two or three weeks when you invited me one night going out of church. And and I thought, well, it's something that I kind of was thinking about, but uh, never really considered uh, real heartily. And so that next morning I came, and I think since that I've only missed a couple times. Okay. So we're looking at 19, 20 weeks somewhere around there. At least be a little bit that. before Christmas, somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, now let me ask you, isn't I mean, let's be honest, you got a bunch of dudes together, and, uh, I mean, is that kind of weird? I mean, because, you know, you pray, you kind of start opening up your heart a little bit, and that's got to get a little bit weird, doesn't it? Well, I don't know if it's weird as much as it is life-changing and the perspective of other people's lives, and I can look around the room and see several guys that have been there just about more than I have. And uh, when you're sitting in a group like that and you hear their prayer requests and you hear the, the uh, passions of their hearts and the way the Holy Spirit is tugged at their hearts, and then they pray, you think, that is really logical that I come to this conclusion. That is really the important thing that I need to really consider as I approach my day and approach my desire that I made that commitment long ago to honor and glorify God with my life today. And you see um, and hear those men pray, and I admit that maybe my prayers were a little shallow 
and God be with so-and-so and God be with here, God help me through this and those kind of things with maybe a certain amount of more maturity than that. But um, it has taught me more determinedly and more appropriately and maybe with more depth just how to pray and open my own heart and mind and uh, expose myself maybe a little bit to the other men around the table. Excellent. You kind of answered my next question, which was, you know, how has God changed you through this? And, uh, but it sounds like you're, you're learning what it means to pray more. Exactly. And uh, I think the, the biggest change is, is uh, the transition to maybe being a peripheral part of the group and not knowing how the other men are really taking me around the table, but then hearing their prayers in my behalf and my family's behalf and my grandchildren's behalf and my children's behalf, and those kind of things um, has really changed even how my days go about where I realize sometimes, oh, why did I say that? Why did I make that little snidey comment or uh, remark? And then it brings to my attention my own need to constantly, or at least as best of my ability, to understand the forgiveness of sin and restoring my relationship with God in my proceeding to the next thing. And I think the, the biggest thing is, um, I know I challenge the guys out at our home a lot, that you don't know the potential that your life represents in God's kingdom. And I think that is reversed and becomes real for us, that we don't know, except through prayer and fellowship like this, the potential that my life might represent in God's kingdom. Awesome. Thank you. And I, one last question. Is there anything that you've had to sacrifice, i.e., you know, to be able to get up in the morning, I don't know if you're an early riser naturally, but uh, is there anything that you've really felt you've had to sacrifice in order to, to be a consistent part of that? Well, as I analyze, I might disappoint you in your question, but I could not find one thing that was on my schedule at 5.30 in the morning <laughs> <laughs> beside a little extra half hour of sleep or whatever that I might get uh, to, not, to avoid uh, doing this, so... No, I think it's been very much a blessing and very much encouraging and even still, at this point in my life, still a life-changing experience. Awesome. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate you sharing all that. Oh, come on, guys. Let's give it up for Bob. I love not telling people what they're going to come up here and have to do. That was fun. But thank you. You answered really well. Um, you know, for, for some of us, it's not a sacrifice. I know for some folks, they just naturally get up early in the morning, and they got nothing to do at 5.30. For me, it's a sacrifice because uh, I have to get to bed early because I don't function with eight, without my eight hours of sleep. So there's a lot of things I would love to do. I used to be very much a night owl, and uh, so it's had, it's had to kind of change, and it's harder to do that. Um, for me to get up in the morning. But, you know, uh, God gives more grace where we're struggling. So, again, uh, thank you so much for sharing, Bob. And I'm, I'm not sharing that to try to tell everybody here, you know, you need to do that at 5.30 in the morning. You need to do this. What I hope you're hearing, though, is that spiritual growth takes place. And as people come together, and let's be honest, guys, if you've ever been part of a small group, sometimes it gets a little weird, you know. I have never felt that weird vibe in, in praying with these other men. Uh, largely because we're not sitting there to talk about everybody's personal life and their sins. You know, we're not having an accountability group. We're just coming together to, to pour our heart out to God. 
you know? And when there's honest prayer like that, I tell you, it really changes. It changes your own heart, your own mind, and it does bring a, a bonding, you know? I never set out to have a small group or an accountability group, but some of the men that we, uh, we pray together, and I really feel like if I've got something on my heart and mind, that I could take it to them. Um, so just that unity that's come about with guys that I didn't even know at the beginning of this. Um, last thing I want to say before, before closing here. I'd like you to open your scriptures one more time to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. And the reason I want to look at this is, uh, you know, you have these seven churches that Jesus speaks to in Revelation and they're very interesting. They're all diverse. I mean, it's a great study if you want to, you know, spend the next 60 years of your life being in a total conundrum, um, you know, then study the book of Revelation, right? Trust me, 60 years, you still won't get through it. Just these seven letters are fascinating. They're fascinating. I'm not here to exegete the text. We're not going to get deep into it. But I, the reason I'm going to point at this text right here, Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7, is because as I look around among conservative, Bible-believing churches, I think this encapsulates a great deal of us. Of us as firm, Bible-believing Christians in America today. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7 says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who were evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, the reason I see us in that is because God is commending them. Jesus says to them, you got some great things going for you, guys. You are concerned about things like right doctrine. You have analyzed these who call themselves prophets and they are not. You resist those who are evil. You patiently endure. And you are bearing up for my name's sake and not growing weary. And I look at Bible-believing churches in America, and I see that spirit of resolve. As the culture turns away from Christ and as churches turn away from the Word, we will stand firm. And God blesses that. Jesus commends that. And I am, for lack of a better term, proud of that. But He says something devastating. You have forgotten your first love. And I believe that what he's talking about is that they had forgotten to love him personally. So that's the challenge for us. Where is our personal love for God, for Jesus? 
Why is it easier to get a hunting party together of ten men during pheasant season than it is to get five men together for an hour of prayer? We're too busy. We're committed to everything else. And even good things have eclipsed our love for God. I don't know if you've heard a whole lot of good news coming out of Ephesus lately. I don't know if there's actually been a resident of that city for about 1,500 years. God took their lamp away. Literally. Research what happened to the city. It's very fascinating. He took their lamp away. In closing, I want to just basically say, I encourage you. Prayer takes sacrifice. I want you to ask yourself, what will I do now? What will I do? What will I give up? How will I make time for real prayer? And who will go with me? Hebrews tells us to stir up one another to love and good works. And it's my passionate prayer this morning that I'm stirring you up to want to get together. To want to get together. 5.30 in the morning might not work for you. That's why, hey, I bet there's somebody else in the world that it doesn't work at 5.30. But I bet there's somebody else in the world who it does work at the same time as it does for you. Consider it. Think about it, please. What will you do? We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.